Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Andrew DeCourt. Dr. DeCourt holds a PhD in ethics from the University of Chicago. He is the author of a book entitled Bonhoeffer's New Beginning, Ethics After Devastation, and he's the director of the Institute for Faith and Flourishing. Dr. DeCourt, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Corey. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Um, our mutual friend, Laura Fabricki, was the last guest on the podcast, and um, she mentioned your name the first time she was on it about a year ago, and so you've been on the list for a while, um, and so I'm glad we can make this happen. Any, any friend of Laura is a friend of mine, so uh, this should be fun. I feel the same way. I'm glad to be in good company. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, how did you uh, how'd you get into Bonhoeffer? Yeah, man. Um... My earliest memories of encountering Bonhoeffer, I think, were through sermons at my youth group. Uh, my pastor used to quote Bonhoeffer, and I particularly remember the quote from The Cost of Discipleship, the old translation, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Mm -hmm. And that quotation was deeply stirring to me. It was challenging. It was energizing. The Bonhoeffer that I encountered was someone who was radically committed to sacrificing his own personal safety, his own personal comfort, for the sake of following Christ and living the Christian life, rather than uh, just a religion of convenience, of confirmation, of comfort. Uh, so it really started there in high school, and just this quotation grabbing hold of me, and then I started actually reading discipleship in high school and was deeply challenged by encountering Bonhoeffer's words at length. Um, and then when I was at Wheaton College, I was in a senior level ethics class, and we read straight through Bonhoeffer's ethics. Hmm. And that was such an energizing and inspiring experience. Every week we would read another section, we would write an essay about the section. And uh, for example, I remember Bonhoeffer saying that ethics is not figuring out how to be a good person. Ethics is the act of being open to the will of God and being radically willing to do it. Um, and Bonhoeffer, for example, talking about the Ten Commandments and not using them as a laundry list to attack culture, but using them as a list for the church's own confession of its sin. Mm. Um, so high school, uh, through sermons, college through reading Bonhoeffer's ethics, and then at uh, the University of Chicago, there were other uh, influences who really continued to, to encourage me to dive deeper into Bonhoeffer. Wow. Uh, how did you end up doing a Bonhoeffer PhD? Yeah, this is, this is a fun story. So I think like every PhD student, I was really wrestling with what my dissertation should be about. Um, I knew that I cared deeply about beginnings as, as a Christian and as a scholar. I had been really formed by Genesis chapter 1, John chapter 1, and this theme of beginnings. And um, I was planning this gigantic dissertation that would be about 50 thinkers, you know, probably like a thousand pages, you know, impossible to write. And um, I was emailing with Chuck Matthews at the University of Virginia. And Chuck is like, have you thought about writing about Bonhoeffer? You should read Creation and Fall. And the, the funny thing was that I was, I had already read Creation and Fall like two or three times recently when I got Chuck's email. And as you know, the beginning of Creation and Fall is all about the beginning because it's Bonhoeffer's commentary or his, his analysis of Genesis chapter one to three. Um, so Chuck's email really felt like a permission to do something that I would have loved to do anyway. It's funny how being a PhD student, you can have these kind of false notions of who you should write about and what your dissertation should be like. And um, Chuck's email was really a permission to write about someone I deeply cared about and, and respected. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it got started, this passion for beginnings and then this kind of slow journey towards discovering, wow, Bonhoeffer is a brilliant thinker on beginnings. This hasn't actually been written about before, so let me let me take a stab at it. How did you uh, become so interested in beginnings or new beginnings? Yeah. So I think new beginnings are a question of hope. Um, we only care about new beginnings because something has come to an end. Hmm. Something has been lost something has been broken or devastated. 
And um, I grew up in a violent neighborhood in, in the western suburbs of Chicago where there was lots of gang violence, there was lots of drug dealing, there were lots of impoverished communities. Um, I think the decisive event in my life happened in 2005. That was the second time that I had moved back to Ethiopia. And a few days later, we started hearing machine gun fire in the part of the city where I was living. And soon enough, we had found out that the police had uh, openly massacred 193 protesters in the city after a federal election um, in which people thought that the government had stolen the election um, and had not objectively reported the results. And so this machine gun fire that I was hearing was literally people being murdered in the streets of my city. And after those events and after I was walking the streets of the city and talking to so many different people in the city, taxi drivers, shop owners, prostitutes, church leaders, um, everyone had a story of someone disappearing, um, of someone being killed, and there was an incredible sense of fear. And this provoked the question, how do we begin again? Can we begin again? What would a new beginning look like for uh, the people of Addis Ababa, for the nation of Ethiopia, and in particular, Corey, I was struck by the silence of the churches mm. after the massacre in 2005. There were no public statements from any of the Protestant churches, to its credit the Catholic Church released a short letter calling for peace in the city. But the, the, the Protestant Church, um, and as far as I know the Orthodox Church, was completely silent in the face of uh, a public massacre that dismembered the body politic and left people asking this question, how do we begin again? So 2005 was that vital year where, as, as Hannah Arendt said after the burning of the Reichstag, that I felt responsible. And, and this question began burning in me. And then I think um, a little bit later in 2013, when I was already in my, my PhD, this question, New Beginnings, became very urgent to me. Um, Gene Elshtain, my PhD advisor, passed away. Mm. Um, earlier that year, I sent an email to my best friend, Matthew Robinson, who's now a professor at the University of Bonn, um, just saying, I have this terrible sense that something is ending in my life. I have this terrible sense that, that something in me is falling apart, and I don't know if I'm going to survive this. And then after sending that email, Jean Elshtain died, and then my mother had a severe stroke, and we thought that she was going to pass away, and thank God she barely survived. Um, and then my mentor's wife suddenly passed away um, in the middle of the night. She was in her early 30s. That same night, um, my friend's mother passed away of breast cancer. Uh, my wife, Lily, and I were in a really painful season of our marriage uh, where we were struggling to get on the same page. And then through this whole time, I was doing this practice of universal entry that I think we're going to talk about a little bit in a few minutes. Um, but universal entry was aggravating and intensifying this sense of anguish and ache as I was allowing the injustice and pain of the world into my heart and mind on a daily basis. Um, so the question of new beginnings, hope of starting over, was intensely personal for me, both on a political level um, but also on a Christian and human existential level of can I begin again hmm. and their hope for my future in the face of, of death, of violence, of injustice, of loss, of depression, can I start over? Um, so th those are some of the backgrounds to the question of new beginnings. Wow. That sounds awful. I'm so sorry that you had to go through all that. It was an intense. It was an intense season for sure, but it was crucial for my formation. Yeah, and I mean, your book is so timely given the current circumstances of what's going on. Um, for listeners who may be listening to the future, um, we are currently in the middle of the protests about the death of George Floyd. Um, yes, and if there's anything that we can hope for, it is for. Uh, a new beginning for Black Lives to Matter and, and yes. all, all of this. Um, so I, I think your book's really timely. I mean, I know you did it a while ago, um, but I'm really glad to be to have read it right before all of this started and be thinking mm -hmm. along those things. And I, I think it's a gift. So so thanks for writing it. Um, and I, I'll keep going with questions though. I just wanted to throw that out there that it just came to mind. Um, Thank you. Your so your book also focuses on the question of. Good, the goodness of existence. So yes. good to be alive. And, and also, should we love our life with others without exclusion? 
Um, yes. So, so those two kind of main themes there. Uh, but you also talk about, what, as you mentioned, this concept of universal entry. So I'm wondering if you can kind of flush out universal entry and how it affects the answers to those questions about the goodness of life and loving life with others without exclusion. Yes. Thank you for those amazing questions. So I think something that makes human life so unique is that we, we don't only exist and we don't only know that we exist we are able to question our existence and ask if our existence has value. And the question of value is the question of, should our lives be loved in the world? No, stones exist. Um, mm -hmm. Certain advanced um, animals know that they exist. They have some level of consciousness. But humans have this unique capacity to reflect on our existence and to interrogate its value. Mm -hmm. And, and for me, as someone who's been trained in philosophy and theology and history, asking these kinds of self-reflexive questions is fundamental. Um, it is the examined life. And when I ask, is it good to exist, I'm asking, should our consciousness in the world, our inhabitation of this planet, be celebrated, be cherished, be something that is a, a cause for joy? And that question goes a bit, a, a level deeper when we ask, should our life in the world with others be loved without exclusion? Because I might have a life that's enjoyable, that's pleasurable, uh, I might be healthy, I might live in a safe neighborhood, I might have plenty of food, I might be surrounded with beauty, I might have uh, a wonderful family, I might have a community that loves and celebrates me. Um, there may be so many causes for um, for satisfaction in my life, um, but am I willing to embrace a life with others without exclusion? Maybe the people in the neighborhood across the street, uh, maybe a life in relationship with people who have disease or who are in prison um, or who are persecuted, who are from a minority group, who are stigmatized, who are biased against in, in our community. Um, am I willing to actively share my life with other people who are experiencing anguish, who are experiencing injustice, who are grieving the loss of George Floyd, um, who are grieving the loss of trust, a loss of safety, a loss of dignity, um, who are grieving hundreds of years of this experience? Then that question is, is it good to exist becomes far more difficult to answer. Mm -hmm. and. The exercise of universal entry that you alluded to is meant to be a radical practice of leaning into these questions. Is it good to exist? Should life with others be loved without exclusion? And basically how universal entry works, Corey, is like this. I was living in Addis Ababa, and I went to the embassy in Addis Ababa um, to apply for a visa for my wife, Lily. At that time, we were dating. And what I noticed was that the embassy would give visas, entry visas, to Ethiopians if they were wealthy, if they were educated, um, if there was no chance that they would pose a threat to the United States and that they would enrich the life of the United States. But of course, on the other hand, applicants for visas who were uneducated, who were poor, who had any disease in their life, would be denied entry to the United States. And that, of course, got me thinking about the nature of our community, um, but it got me thinking on a more profound uh, moral level of, is my mind like the U.S. Embassy and like the American government? Hmm. Well, I think that it's good to exist when I exclude entry to all of these unpleasant people who may be sick, uh, who may be uh, uh, suspicious, who may be dangerous, um, or can I embrace the goodness of life and the love worthiness of life with others when I grant a universal visa to anyone, to the sick, uh, to people from other religions, uh, to people from other convictions, to people who may hate me and may uh, question my way of life? If I grant entry to those people, can I still give a positive answer to these fundamental questions at the heart of the human condition? 
And so universal entry became this daily exercise of welcoming people into my heart and mind. So for example, when I would wake up in the morning and when I would brush my teeth, I would think of people who were um, people who were thirsty, people who had pain in their mouths, people who had sores in their mouths. Uh, when I would clothe myself after I got out of bed, I would think of people that I had seen in Addison elsewhere who were naked, who would walk the streets without clothing on or with threadbare clothes, uh, people who were cold as they slept at night. Um, as I would eat my breakfast, I would allow myself to think about our sisters and brothers around the world who had no food, who knew um, the excruciating pain of hunger, or who had become numb because of hunger. Um, when I would do my study, I would think of people who um, had, had been trained to censor themselves because they lived in a political community that was oppressive and where thinking free thoughts and asking critical questions and pursuing the truth was literally a life-threatening commitment. Um, I tried to make my mind a place of hospitality for sisters and brothers in suffering around the world. And when my mind became this cemetery, this mourning tent, this place of unhappiness in which I could not bear to be, as St. Augustine said in the Confessions, then I had to ask those questions again. Is it still good to exist? Is life in the world with others worthy of love when I don't exclude these people who are painful to me, these people who show me the injustice and suffering of the world? So universal entry really became the engine of the question of new beginnings. Hmm. When I open my mind to the radical level of suffering in our world, um, not as an abstraction, not as a, not as a statistic, um, but as the lived reality of human beings who look, whose lives matter just as much as mine does, can I still say, yes, I'm going to go through life affirming that life is good. I'm going to go through life affirming that life with others should be loved without exclusion. So universal entry is really the the engine and, and in some ways the furnace of this question that led to this conviction that we need new beginnings. If I'm going to, at, at least if Andrew, uh, as, as a person, as a thinker, if I can affirm that life is good, we need a new beginning. Um, if I can affirm that life with others should be loved, we need a new beginning. Because the way things are now are devastated. Um, so that's a little bit about the background of, of this exercise and how it contextualized the book in my study of Bonhoeffer. Wow. I was reading your book and thinking about this practice of universal entry. And A, I mean, it just sounded so uh, exhausting and painful <laughs> to, put, yeah. and like, to put your mind there for a long time. Um, and I, I tend to shy away from those things, um, honestly, just to be, be real. Yep. And I, this, this past weekend, so the events of this, of this week with George Floyd are happening. Um, this past weekend, I, have, I had class. Um, so like two to nine Friday, eight to five on Saturday, we do cohorts, um, in the yep. master's program. Um, and I'm taking a class on the book of Job right now. Um, so just deep dive into the book of Job. These events are happening. One of my readings for the book of Job, uh, for the class is, um, a book called a grace disguised by, um, Jerry Sitzer. Um, Jerry Sitzer is one of my professors in my program. Um, he wrote a book similar to uh, A Grief Observed, um, Lewis's work on, on loss. He lost, I think in 1995, he lost uh, three generations of his family in a car crash. Oh. Um, and wrote this, like three years after wrote this reflection. Um, and it's one of the best books I've ever, I've ever read. Um, but so I was reading that, going to a class on the book of Job, and the events that are going on right now and thinking, is this what universal entry is like? And I yes. just remember thinking, I just want to, I just want to avoid this. Like, yes, I want to play like when I'm in the lecture, I just want to, I'm just going to pull up, I don't know, some other book that I don't, that is lighthearted. I want to watch a show. that's lighthearted. I want to, you know, not deal Absolutely. with the actual pain, but, but it seems that from your book and from this practice that 
that if you go that direction, there's a horizon on the other side that gives everything much deeper meaning than than if you had avoided it in the first place. Yes. Yeah, that's the conclusion of the book. I mean, that's my general argument, that there is a horizon of hope on the other side of devastation and that we have to go through the devastation of universal entry because if we arrive at hope that excludes these people that we find painful, it's not a real hope. Mm-hmm. It's a false hope. Wow. It's another form of privilege. Yeah. If we arrive at a hope that doesn't have a place for the worst sufferers of our world who have experienced the greatest injustice that humanity has engineered, it's not real hope. Hmm. It's another illusion of human greatness. And you pointed to something important. I think that this pandemic and I think the, the global protest in response to George Floyd's murder is a small taste of universal entry. Right where humans around the world have experienced, I can't live in my own bubble. The suffering of people in other places across borders must concern me and my community. And I think that this is extremely practical and important, Corey. I mean, one of my dearest friends sent me a text a couple of weeks ago and he said, Andrew, if 90% of humanity died from COVID-19, would you still believe in God? And I wrote back and said that I would and gave some reasons why, which are rooted in my book. Um, and, but I asked the question back to my friend. I said, if 90% of humanity died, would you still believe in God? And to his credit, he was very honest and he says, I'm not sure. <laughs> I might not. Yeah. But the challenge of universal entry is to say that evil and suffering is happening right now as we're recording this podcast. Yeah. So if we're kind of Uh, entertaining some illusion that things are basically okay until the next crisis uh, runs through the news cycle, we're being dishonest. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we could go to all different sorts of places in the United States and around the world and find a magnitude and an acuteness of injustice, of evil, of breakdown that, um, you know, many of our faiths would fall apart. And that's that's kind of part of the agenda of this book, is to not wait for another crisis to claim our attention, but to actively look into the face of the world and say, can you still see the horizon of hope when you look through this lens? Wow. That's so powerful. <laughs> I'm kind of speechless. With this concept of universal entry and answering these questions by, by doing this process, you also, in your book, offer four different philosophers and their views on new beginnings, and uh, and you kind of use Bonhoeffer in conversation with them. So I was wondering, who are the? Uh, could you list the four philosophers um, and why? Why did you choose them, and uh, what conclusions did you come to given their answers? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so the the four are Nietzsche, Arendt, Glover, and Lear. Um. These are four brilliant thinkers. I've learned so much from their work. They are all non-religious or not explicitly religious. Um, Some of them are very critical of religion, so they were extremely valuable in providing a counter perspective to Bonhoeffer's. Um, Some of these are very classic pillar thinkers. So I personally continue to think that Nietzsche is one of the most important thinkers in history for our time today. And I particularly urge my Christian sisters and brothers to read Nietzsche uh, because I think Nietzsche is one of the most fierce and ferocious and funny critics of Christianity. And he is a mirror that we need to look into um, to see if our faith is honest or if it is a self-deception that is fueled by a hunger for power. And Nietzsche argues that God doesn't exist God is a, an illusion of the human mind seeking justifications for values that give a certain group power and dominance over others. And so Nietzsche's argument is that when, when we get rid of God, when we kill God, or when we simply acknowledge that God isn't there, human beings have total freedom to begin however we want. And so Nietzsche's argument is get rid of the theology 
and then there is a blank slate for the human uh, for human agency to assert itself on the world and to create the kind of values in society that we want. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm simplifying here, but Nietzsche is is essentially arguing that once we get rid of God, the question of new beginnings is is a struggle of power. Who is, who has the most power to to uh, script and to construct the future that they want and to put other people to use for their purposes. And I think that Nietzsche is the most challenging argument for contemporary morality still to this day. Why should we respect other people? Why should we say life is good, something to be honored and recognized and cherished? Why should we say that life with others should be loved without exclusion? Why, why not get rid of the annoying people? Uh, why not get rid of the people who don't look like us? Why not get rid of the people that we think are going to take our jobs and steal our resources and put our, our children to risk in our neighborhoods? Why not build walls and get rid of those people? Nietzsche asks those questions in a particularly provocative and, and powerful way. Um, and Arendt, of course, is, I think, one of the most brilliant thinkers of beginnings and new beginnings in the 20th century. Uh, so much of her philosophy revolves around this question of how do you start over after totalitarianism. Of course, Arendt was the author of The Origins of Totalitarianism. And um, in many of her books, including The Human Condition, Arendt specifically talks about humans as the unique creature who can make new beginnings. Um, and so I definitely had to t talk about Arendt. And in fact, I was planning for this book to be about 50-50 about Bonhoeffer and Arendt. But then I discovered as I was reading every word that Bonhoeffer wrote, that he wrote so much about new beginnings. And I just didn't have the space to, to give an equal treatment to Arendt and Bonhoeffer. But Arendt is, is brilliant on new beginnings. I won't go through each one. Glover and mm -hmm. Lear are also brilliant. Glover wrote a book called The Moral History of the 20th Century, where he looked at several of the greatest horrors of the 20th century and then asked, how do we start over? And then Lear looks at the devastation of the Crow Indian tribe in the, Amer in the United States um, and asks about how they restarted their culture after they were forcefully moved to a reservation and their traditional way of life was no longer possible. Hmm. Um, so each one of these thinkers is brilliant. Each one of these thinkers is is non-religious or certainly not Christian in the way that Bonhoeffer is. Each one of these thinkers is asking about new beginnings. But the thing that unites each one of them, Corey, is that all of them think we can make new beginnings. All hmm. of them think that we have the power to make new beginnings. They think that we have the knowledge to make new beginnings. And they think that humans should go ahead and make new beginnings. And that's um, precisely one of the claims that I'm trying to challenge in this book, that we know how to make new beginnings, that we have the right and the ability to make new beginnings. I think that there's a kind of hubris and a kind of arrogance in that claim that is part of the problem that got us to devastation in the first place. Excellent. That's a great lead in for this next question. Um, how is Bonhoeffer's approach different? Yeah. So like we were just saying, Bonhoeffer has this really countercultural, frustrating, challenging position that we don't really know how to make new beginnings. And we don't really have the capacity to make new beginnings. And we certainly don't have the justification to make new beginnings on our own. Again, Bonhoeffer has this countercultural, uh, frustrating position that human beings are um, impaired in our moral knowledge. We have a lack of clarity and a lack of, of, uh, of insight into what is truly good and worthy of love. And so, so many of our projects are misguided and distorted in what they're aiming for. And Bonhoeffer questions the capacity of human beings to do the right thing. We are habituated in things like pride, in things like fear, in things like egocentrism, in, in, in uh, envy, in hatred. These drives that flow deep within human nature distort our capacities to do what is truly right and good. And again, Bonhoeffer thinks that we don't have the justification to make new beginnings because I can force one new beginning on you and you can force one new beginning on me and white people can try to band together and do something that may affect the lives of black people and vice versa. 
but without some kind of higher standard to evaluate and critique these initiatives, they all begin to be that war of all against all that Thomas Hobbes wrote about, mm-hmm. or the, the struggle for power that Nietzsche wrote about, um, the clash of absolutes. All of us are willers, all of us are, in, are able to make choices, but at the end of the day, we're simply bumping into one another and, and destroying one another. Um, so, so Bonhoeffer's position is different because he says the first place that we need to start in making a new beginning is realizing that we can't make new beginnings. Yeah. And that's, that's a paradoxical perspective that requires a radical stop and think. It requires a radical interruption. It requires a radical pause to say, the thing that I most desperately need, the thing that we most desperately need, is not accessible to us with our current knowledge and resources. We need something more than ourselves. And so Bonhoeffer's position leads to this this profound and risky and and refreshing openness to otherness. Hmm. Whether that otherness is God, whether that otherness is another human being. So the kind of disappointment of Bonhoeffer's perspective that we're not capable of making our own beginnings leads to this posture of openness, what I call... um, waiting upon and and welcoming and receiving and responding to the other Hmm. wow Uh, that was my favorite part of the book Uh, mainly that's the part of Bonhoeffer that I'm most passionate about I I just finished my thesis um, and it's all about the central argument is that Bonhoeffer's work is about surrendering autonomy yes Um, that there is uh, any attempt to make a new beginning would be attempted from our own knowledge of good and evil apart from God, apart from the origin, and would be just another way of rebelling. Yes. And, and instead, uh, surrendering that and kind of this heteronomy, um, this moment-by-moment um, moment dependence on the will of God. It's that central question in ethics that you brought up, that it's not about that any attempt to understand how do we live a good and moral life is a, an attempt to exercise our own knowledge of good and evil. Um, and the opposite is to run to God and ask his will and to do it. And that the central issue there is uh, autonomy, whether it's us or his will or our will, I guess. Yes. Yes. Awesome. So, but what you do after that in your book, you go into, um, this, the central issue of our inability to make new beginnings and be open to others. Um, then you go into kind of, uh, you go into Bonhoeffer's work and list various places uh, that he says that we can practice new beginnings while we wait and are open to others. Uh, could you tell us what those are? Yes, yes. So, first of all, Bonhoeffer thinks that practice is really important. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing this word practice everywhere now, practice social distancing. Practicing something is it means something that you need to do over and over again to to acquire some kind of skillfulness. And Bonhoeffer thinks that the practice of new beginnings are rooted in this openness to God and to others, this waiting upon otherness that is that is the recognition that I'm not fully complete in myself. And there are several practices of new beginning in Bonhoeffer's thought. I wasn't able to discuss all of them in my book, and it would be so exciting for other Bonhoeffer scholars to address other practices of new beginnings and, and of course, to enrich and critique my articulation of the Bonhoeffer practices that I do discuss. But there's there's six that I really focus on in my book. And the first is, is baptism. Hmm. And baptism may seem like a tired and uh, very traditional and, and kind of boring um, starting point for the practices of new beginning. But for Bonhoeffer, Baptism is very radical because it's the act of dying. It's the act of saying that I fundamentally lay down my life, my knowledge, my power, my values, and I start over and say, the old self has been abandoned. It's dead. It's buried in the ground. And I am starting over with uh, openness to radically new assumptions and new convictions and new loves. Um, I am willing to let go of my cultural, my nationalistic, my racial, uh, my religious assumptions about who God is and what the good life is 
and what responsibility means for me in my community. All of that gets executed and left behind. And so, again, there's a paradox at the start of Bonhoeffer's practices of new beginning. You have to start by realizing that you can't start by yourself. And that that gets symbolized in the water of baptism, where you go under the water and the old self dies, and you rise up into the new world of God and creation with others, and you realize the shock and surprise that you're a learner now. Mm. And this leads to the second practice, which is prayer. And again, this may sound like, oh, not a very interesting practice of new beginning, prayer. But for Bonhoeffer, prayer is essentially the practice of listening for God. And that means that you are putting yourself in a posture of readiness for surprise, because you can't control God. You can't know who God is in advance. You can never capture and fully comprehend God. Um, And so when you pray, you're not just saying things to God. You're not just asking for things from God. But for Bonhoeffer, the heart of prayer is that you're opening yourself to God and God's surprising mystery and countercultural character. Mm. This reminds me, Corey, of a prayer that I heard on the south side of Chicago at the United Church of Christ uh, with Reverend Moss, who's one of the, the great preachers in Chicago today. And he had his all hold hands with our neighbors, and then he said, Lord, disturb us. Lord, disturb us. That prayer changed my life, because Reverend Moss was showing that when we enter into prayer, we enter into a posture where God disturbs us, where God is not our idol, where God is not the confirmation of our bias, where God is not the vending machine of our desires. But God is the one who can awaken new insight and new desire and new love and a new passion for justice that could radically change who I am and how I live. Mm -hmm. So for Bonhoeffer, we begin with baptism. We continue with this prayer, this listening for a transcendent God who embraces our humanity. Then he goes on to repentance, confession, and forgiveness. And I mean, this is the logical next step, that when you are listening to the transcendent God, who is not the confirmation of your bias, who is not the reaffirmation of your cultural values, some things are going to need to change. And that is the practice of repentance of saying, uh, there are distortions in my loves, there are distortions in my assumptions, there are distortions in my practices, and I surrender them. Like you just said that word surrender, which is so important to Bonhoeffer. I surrender these beliefs and values and practices that are not um, following in the path of Christ's new beginning that Mm -hmm. he has placed in front of us. And um, this is such a rich, rich area of Bonhoeffer's thought, but for forgiveness, the response to confession, Bonhoeffer thinks that each one of us encounters Christ in the other. He thinks that when I say, Corey, please, forgive me, I have wronged you, that you can give me forgiveness just like Christ can, and that when I receive forgiveness from you, I'm actually standing in the presence of Jesus. And this is rooted in a deep a deep and profound mysticism in Bonhoeffer's thought that I've never seen anyone fully unpack, but it's rooted in Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46, where Jesus says, whatever you have done to the least of these, my sisters and brothers, you've done to me. Bonhoeffer takes that passage very seriously, and he thinks that when we forgive one another, we are acting as Christ, and that we're standing in the presence of Christ together, which I think is extremely profound. I uh, don't just encounter Christ by closing my eyes. I encounter Christ by opening my eyes and looking in your face, receiving forgiveness from you. Um, The fourth practice of New Beginning um, is service, resistance, and suffering. I've kind of nestled three together in Mm -hmm. one. But Bonhoeffer says that the heart of the Christian life is what he calls acts of love. Bonhoeffer thinks that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is essentially to act in love. And what I love is that resistance for Bonhoeffer, political resistance, Bonhoeffer's decision to throw in his lot with people trying to kill Adolf Hitler and and undermine the Third Reich, for Bonhoeffer, that was all an act of love. And an act of love essentially means giving my 
my time, my resources, my energy, my power on behalf of others. As you know, Bonhoeffer mm -hmm. talks endlessly about living with and for others. And so acts of love are acts of living with and for others. And when millions and millions of others are, are being systematically excluded and murdered, Bonhoeffer thinks that an, even a radical act like trying to kill a tyrant is in fact an act of love. It's an act of service. It's not an act of radicalism. Mm -hmm. um, it's not an act of assuming that I am righteous. It's not an act of uh, assuming that I myself can fundamentally change the political order. It's rather a humble act of love and service on behalf of vulnerable sisters and brothers. Of course, Bonhoeffer refers to the most vulnerable sister, brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, where I believe he's referring to Jewish brothers and sisters, and he thinks that this kind of radical sacrifice is essential for being a follower of Jesus. Mm. Um, the fifth that I talk about is gratitude. Um, I love this so much, Corey. You know, Bonhoeffer is in prison for two years of his life. Before he's in prison, he was banned from traveling. He was banned from speaking in public. He was banned from publishing books. Um, Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer's life is a story of increasing isolation, increasing suffering, um, increasing causes of distress and despair, and yet all throughout Bonhoeffer's works, we find this incredible emphasis on the life of gratitude, of being mindful of gifts, of cherishing everything is a blessing for God, from God. And I really love this kind of, this Bonhoeffer mind, Corey. Um, for Bonhoeffer, there's nothing to be taken for granted in the world. All things shine and shimmer as God's gifts that call for our celebration. Again, I, I said earlier that we don't just exist, we don't just know that we exist, we can ask, is it good to exist? And gratitude is one of the most profound responses to that question, is it good to exist? Because gratitude recognizes not simply objects, but it recognizes gifts with value. Um, and so Bonhoeffer thinks that the authentic life of new beginnings is a life that moves from seeing uh, um, neutral or even valueless objects to seeing sacred gifts that are worthy of celebration and cherishing, that are worthy of gratitude. And so even when Bonhoeffer is in prison, you see all throughout his letters where he's writing about how he's giving thanks for simple things like smoking cigarettes or... <laughs> Uh, you know, getting gifts from his family from outside the prison or the blessing of his relationship with Maria um, or his friendship, of course, with Eberhard. Um, so gratitude is one of the practices of New Beginning, where you move from just seeing the world as a kind of empty, raw material that you can make of what you want to seeing the world as this kind of um, treasured space of gifts given by God and others to be celebrated. And the last practice of of New Beginning that I discuss at least, I think is appropriate. It's the resurrection, mm -hmm. um, because this is a new beginning that we can't make for ourselves. Um, it's a new beginning that only God can do. But Bonhoeffer thinks that we can celebrate it in this life, and that celebrating the resurrection energizes all of the other practices of New Beginning in this horizon of universal entry where everything seems lost. And Corey, I want to say that I think this sixth practice of New Beginning, the resurrection, is especially relevant at our time today with the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. um, the resurrection does a couple different things in Bonhoeffer's thought. Um, first, it reminds us that um, we're going to die, and we will never be the possessor of the earth. We are finite, fallen moral creatures who are passing away. And so Bonhoeffer says that humans should abandon any attempt to construct earthly eternities. Um, the idolatry of white supremacy will pass away because all white supremacists are dying. Mm. Um, and Bonhoeffer thinks that celebrating the resurrection, just like celebrating baptism, begins with this recognition that none of us can hold on to this world. So we should stop pursuing this illusion. But the resurrection also gives us incredible courage. If I lose my life in this world, I have not lost everything. Um, 
Bonhoeffer's last words are, this is for me the end, but also the beginning of life. When this life ends, if I'm even murdered, I've not lost everything, but rather I have become more radically available to the new beginning power of God. Hmm. And so living a life of sacrifice, living a life of, of even martyrdom, is not something to be feared. Um, it's rather something to be embraced with grace and patience and courage because we have nothing to lose because God is the resurrector of the dead and the source of our hope. So the resurrection cuts against our attempts to possess and dominate the earth. The earth doesn't belong to us and we're all passing away. But the resurrection gives us hope to love the earth and to sacrificially act on behalf of our neighbors, our sisters and brothers, the suffering, the persecuted, the oppressed, because we have nothing to lose, because God promises a new beginning that exceeds the human capacity to destroy. Um, so I really, I really love this aspect of Bonhoeffer's thought. Um, and I think that, you know, we see the passion of Bonhoeffer for beginnings all the way to the end of his life with those final words. This for me, the end, but also the beginning of life. What an incredible statement of hope, yeah. of energy, uh, possibility, uh, rooted in the love of God. Um, I love it, Corey. And, and also in his last words, he talks about our universal brotherhood and how all hatred will fail. And he's certain of this because of the love of God. It's, it's just extraordinary hopefulness. Again, when we go back to that horizon of universal entry, and can we really begin again? And Bonhoeffer says, actually, when we die and when we let go of our drive to begin again, there's an extraordinary buoyancy of hope. Wow. That is such good news. <laughs> it is good news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I really appreciated uh, this section. I wish I had read your book before I completed my, my uh, thesis because I am kind of where you do. Um, a little bit different. I, I mean, I, I kind of point to Bonhoeffer as if it's all about dependence and and giving surrendering autonomy and uh, i use this phrase from god's love and the disintegration of the world from ethics uh where he talks about the hearing and doing and that they're not two things but one thing so bonhoeffer's practical theology would be how do we hear so that we can do um yes. so i list some some ways there which i think you co covered all of them um but there are some there that i'm like oh i should have like that, that's a, such a good one and that's so like clear now looking back on it but um Thank you so much for writing this. I mean, I think I think you've done not only Bonhoeffer scholars a service, but anyone who reads your book. I mean, just kind of hearing your passion for it and hearing uh, the deep sense of hope that is far different from just the like, don't worry, God God will work it out or being blasé about throwing out Romans 8.28 or something like that. But that there's a deep sense of hope and new beginnings in the midst of the resurrection and in the midst of our suffering. Yes. That's great. Yes. Thank you. You're so welcome. This is a time where we need hope. And I'd just like to say, uh, Cornell West says, we simply have hope. We need to be hope. Yeah. And I think yeah. that Bonhoeffer's theology rooted in dying to ourselves and beginning over by, with following Jesus and loving our neighbor enables us to be hope. Of course, not in an idolatrous way. Mm -hmm. None of us are the hope. Um, but like you said, uh, not simply hearing, but doing and living the active life of hope. We need this today. And Bonhoeffer, is, he's just a, a, a rich and refreshing well of this kind of insight and energy. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Thank you so much for discussing this book, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to. Um, I have one final question for you. It's kind of a, a fun question that I ask every guest. Um, it's really just to get book recommendations. So a little game of Desert Island. Um, if you had to choose one book by Bonhoeffer, uh, and one <laughs> secondary source, so anything about his life, theology, written by anyone. What two books would you take? Yeah. This is a hard question, my brother. Um, <laughs> I think that I would take Letters and Papers from Prison, um, the the Complete Works edition with all the footnotes and all of the supplementary material. Uh, one, because it's long, and if I was on a desert island, it'd take some time. Uh -huh. um, and I just love that collection of Bonhoeffer's writings. I love that it includes After Ten Years, which I think is one of Bonhoeffer's most important essays. Um, it's very important for our time today. Um, and I just love how Bonhoeffer like writes with his mother. And mm -hmm. I love how 
you can see their relationship of family love and devotion to one another and commitment to justice playing out as they just send letter after letter back to one another. Um, so letters and papers from prison. And I think the secondary work that I would take is probably Bethka's biography of Bonhoeffer. Um, I didn't actually read this book until after I finished my PhD <laughs> because um, I didn't want it to influence my interpretation of Bonhoeffer. I wanted to have my own encounter with Bonhoeffer. Uh -huh. So, you know, I read every word that Bonhoeffer wrote, or at least that survives us today. Uh, but after I finished, I did read Bethka's biography, and I loved it. And I thought it was so incredibly thorough, and I learned so much from it. And uh, if I was on a desert island, I mean, again, I'd have a lot of time to read. <laughs> so I could, huge. you know, read like a thousand-page book. So probably I would take... Um, Bethka's and um, um, I was going to say something mean about Metaxas's book, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, no worries. We have we have plenty of other podcast episodes that do. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, thank you. Yeah, again, thank you so much just for coming on and being willing to have this conversation and and for your book and yeah, just being so open to this is this is a lot of fun. It's a real privilege for me, brother. It's encouraging. It's refreshing. Thank you so much for your passion for Bonhoeffer and making um, his thoughts so available to the wider public. I really appreciate your work and service. Oh, it's a it's a labor of love. So your your book is entitled Bonhoeffer's New Beginning: Ethics After Devastation. Anywhere books are sold, you can find anywhere books are sold. Yeah. Yeah, mainly I would say mainly online. Okay. Um, it's an academic book, but yeah, you can find it. Great. Um, and then um, if anyone has any further questions, you have your website, just something like that, just to reach out to you if they have any questions about your book. Yep. Andrew-Decourt.com. Um, they can always email me, andrew.d.decourt at gmail.com. Uh, I would love to be in touch with your audience for sure. Great. Awesome. Well, yeah, again, thanks so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. I look forward to it, Corey. Thanks so much, brother. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash bonhoefferpod. I've created this Patreon for a few reasons. One, the podcast has production costs, and it would be nice to offset some of that. Two, I hope to eventually transition this podcast from monthly to at least bi-weekly. And three, it will allow us to connect more regularly about Bonhoeffer Scholarship. So please consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash bonhoefferpod. And as always, thanks for listening.